Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. On me, the summer storm and fever and melancholy wrought magic, so that if I feared the solitude far more, I feared all company. Too sharp, too rude, had been the wisest or the dearest human voice. What I desired I knew not, but whate'er my choice vain it must be I knew. Yet naught did my despair but sweeten the strange sweetness, while through the wild air all day long I heard a distant cuckoo calling, and soft as dulcimers, sounds of near water falling, and softer and remote as if in history, rumours of what had touched my friends, my foes, or me. That's a poem called Melancholy by Edward Thomas. It was quite melancholy. It was quite melancholic, wasn't it? I I think it perfectly describes his mood when he's setting out on the journey described in this book. Hmm. Rain unhappiness, doesn't really want to be around people, just mm. to be on his own. We have to say welcome and say what we're, we're talking about now, don't we? <laughs> I'm feeling a bit gloomy. Am I saying welcome? No, I'll do it. No. But I need to just change, do a handbrake turn and go, Welcome <laughs> to the Curiously Specific Book Club, the podcast that's curiously specific about dates and locations in well-known books. Every episode, we take a book out into the wild to see if the world of fiction, or in this case, the world of non-fiction, matches up with the real world. Um, hello, my name is Tim Wright. I'm a digital writer and a producer of Immersive Experiences. My name's Lloyd Shepard. and I'm a writer and a digital producer. This is a first of three episodes we're going to be doing about poets. Yes. Can poetry be curiously specific? Yeah. Uh, we, we're in, are starting with a book which is not in itself a poem, or is it? Uh, it's a book called In Pursuit of Spring 
by Edward Thomas. Edward Thomas is obviously very well known now as a poet. When he wrote this book, he was not yet a poet. He hadn't written any poetry. He was he was a critic, an essayist. He had lots of opinions about poetry. Lots of opinions about poetry. Knew his poetry inside out. Yeah. Uh, was not a happy man. Was very depressed. Yeah. His, uh, his creative spirit was being stifled by one thing and another. Mm-hmm. So he sets out on a bike ride. And I he, think you're going to tell us where he goes. Well... This is what he says he does. He says, This is the record of a journey from London to the Quantock Hills, to Nether Stowey, Kilve, Crocombe, and West Bagborough, to the high point where the Taunton Bridgewater Road tops the hills and shows all Exmoor behind, all the Mendips before, and upon the left the sea, and Wales very far off. It was a journey on or with a bicycle. The season was Easter, a March Easter. The start, London to Guildford. I had planned to start on March the 21st and rather late than early to give the road time for drying. The light arrived bravely and innocently enough at sunrise, too bravely, for by eight o'clock it was already abashed by a shower. There could be no doubt that either I must wait for a better day or at the next convenient fine interval I must pretend to be deceived and set out prepared for all things. So at ten I started with maps and sufficient clothes to replace what my waterproof could not protect from rain. Wow. Well, we've got the maps. We've got the maps. We've got the weather. It's nearly ten. It's nearly ten. And we're in the right place, aren't we? We're outside 61 Shellgate Road in just off uh, Battersea Rise. Yes. uh, In Clapham. That's right. Uh, And it's the uh, childhood home and intermittently home throughout his later years of Edward Thomas. There's a nice blue plaque. There is a nice blue plaque. There's also a rather smart bronze plaque by the front door promoting the services of an aesthetic medicine practitioner. Ooh. Is that a cosmetic surgeon, do we think? No, it's something a bit more advanced than cosmetic, isn't it? It's, uh, is it this aesthetic? And you're a, you're a country boy. Yeah. That bird that we can hear, that's not a chaffinch, right? Well, it's nice of you Or a chiff-chaff, rather. It's, it's not a chiff-chaff. It's not a chiff-chaff. So it's not the first sign of spring. Yeah. No. No. But what it is, I don't know. I couldn't tell you. I, to be honest, I think it's probably a tit. OK, well... More like one it. more, one more to add. <laughs> There's two tips with them on the mics, and one more tip in the tree. Um, so we are here to start our, frankly, rather exciting adventure, in pursuit of, in pursuit of spring. Yes. By Edward Thomas. Uh, yes. Some some debate for me about. Oh, it's good to have a bin lorry around where yeah. we start. There is one poem where he talks about having to try and listen to the bird song but being drowned out by the sound of yeah. men and machines. Yeah. So that's exactly that's what's right happening here. This. I thought we might start with a poem. I think that would be rather lovely. I think we should read a poem everywhere we stop. Okay. Well, since we're going on the road, yeah. I thought I would read a bit of Roads. Yes. Roads. I love roads. The goddesses that dwell far along invisible are my favourite gods. Roads go on while we forget and are forgotten like a star that shoots and is gone. On this earth to shore, 
We men have not made anything that doth fade so soon, so long endure. The hill road wet with rain in the sun would not gleam like a winding stream if we trod it not again. <laughs> Performed beautifully to the accompaniment of the local dust cart. I feel Edward Thomas would be happy with that. <laughs> I think we've had birds, we've had poems, and we've had lorries, and we've had rubbish. It's, it's quite a good it's start. It's all a good start to be in London. This is actually his dad's house, you know, his family his house. His dad's, he spent his childhood here, right? Easy. He talks about Wandsworth Common quite a lot in this section of the book, actually. Yeah. Because he rides out from here, doesn't he, up to Bolingbroke Grove. Yeah. And then along and around Wandsworth Common yeah. and up to Burntwood Lane, which is a route we're, we're going to follow. And he talks about Wandsworth Common rather disparagingly. He does. And he talks about the pond as being something that kind of rises and falls. I don't think he liked Clapham. There's a point in the book where he says that the worst people in the world are the crowds of people in Clapham Junction. Well, to be fair, he says the worst crowds are at Clapham Junction. I think he said the worst people in the world. But I think he means people. (laughs) I think he means people. (laughs) I think he means his dad. Because his dad he didn't get on with, right? No. So it's not very countrysidey, but I'm not surprised he wanted to get out. That's another lorry. Yeah. The noise... well, the we've got the weather right as well, because he t- the, he, the, the first day or two of the book are dominated by rain, right? It's very showery. He keeps yeah. getting wet. Yeah. It's very showery today. We're a bit later than he was. Yeah. Well, it's April the... What is it? April the 14th we're leaving. So we're yes. leaving uh, nearly a month after him. No, three weeks after him. Three he weeks after him. Um, but we, so we've got cherry blossom. We've got the birds, and we've got global warming. So we're uh, we're ahead we're of well him. ahead of him. We're right ahead of him in spring, in, ter- in terms of chasing spring. And we're not on bikes. We're no. nice. We're a rather nice car. Nice car. So, we're, so um, we're going to drive now through uh, South London and out towards the southwest. I want to take us to our first trees. Our first trees. Yeah. How many trees have you got? I'm looking you, forward when you say to the I'm, first tree. He talks a lot about trees. And uh, we want, I want to go and find some oaks in Ashted. Ooh, that's a good idea. I so think there's a lone robin that calls from is. one of the trees. So hopefully we'll find a robin as well. Okay. You better be true. I, bet, I hope he's not making all this up. A robin sang in one of the broad oaks, whether anyone listened or not. On the opposite side of the road, that is to say on the left, the common had given way to Ashstead Park. There the big iron-coloured oaks stood aristocratically about on gentle green slopes. To Ashstead Park belonged the Honorary Mary Greville Howard, who died in 1877 at the age of 92 and is commemorated by a fountain on the right hand, which gave me this information. That's his hack work coming in again, isn't it? Of like the word count. That's word right. count. Well, we've just driven from uh, Clapham. He probably didn't have to put up with dog walkers in, in 1913, so we're just moving away from the dog walkers. Yeah, come on. Uh, we're here. standing, we're trying to stand it. We're in Ashdale Park right now. Yeah. Oh, dear. There they are. No wonder the dogs were getting the dogs excited. in. There they go. Hoppy, hoppy loppy. It's a nice rural scene. Two white bobtailed deer running through the... Well, those are beaches over there. There but are. There are lots of oaks here. So we're standing at the corner of Ashton Park. Um, it's raining. You can probably hear the rain. 
there is uh, an old oak actually that looks like it's been cut down big old oak hello I'm saying hello to hello you puppy hello you're very gorgeous yeah and there are lots of oaks here that would have been sort of standing on a green hill there's quite a lot of scrubby tree land around it now as well but you can see oaks over there by the yeah by the road by the road in fact the main thing that struck us driving down from uh, driving down from Clapham was how post 1930s much of the landscape is down there mm. and how it would have felt quite rural when he was driving through here and actually the the gap from from sort of around Merton Morden all the way to Yule was quite a long way yes it was and it would have just been land just would have been countryside and fields and farms and yeah and a long there. straight old hack down yeah, what is now the A24 like it was, would have felt like it was probably out of London by then oh no question and I feel we've only really just gone out of London now we've come through Epsom. Yeah, the first sort of villagey bit we got to was Yule, actually. That seemed like a proper old village. Yeah, yeah. This is a poem called March. Now I know that spring will come again, perhaps tomorrow. However late I've patience after this night following on such a day. While still my temples ached from the cold burning of hail and wind, and still the primroses torn by the hail were covered up in it, the sun filled earth and heaven with a great light, and a tenderness, almost warmth, where the hail dripped as if the mighty sun wept tears of joy. What I'm liking is that we had bin men in the background of the first poem and we've got dog walkers <laughs> shouting in the background of the second. We're very much still in London, aren't we? I think it's good, it's good. I think it's sort of like, that's the reality of how, where poetry takes place. <laughs> so we're well on our way now. We are. We've probably come about 15 miles, I would say. I'm going to say something about Epsom that, again, he's sort of like, he's, he's already going on about nature and rural riddle, but Epsom in 1913, you get a train down here and lots of townies would be down here picnicking yeah. by the Epsom, getting, you know, getting some Epsom salts and yes. going to the waters yeah, yeah. there. And going to the horse races. And I think it was rather, yeah, and, and I think the local locals found it that there was a lot of rowdy behaviour down here. Oh, okay. People came down here to have a, a rowdy trips. time on a day trip. Oh, right. So it wouldn't have been that quiet, it probably would have been a bit shouty. Okay. Just saying. Interesting. Mm. But he's, uh, he's coming down on a good Friday. Well, that's what a good Friday would have been a day they'd be doing that, right? That's right. I think Although be... the weather's not great, is it, in the start of the book, so maybe people have not come out well, in quite such numbers. They can still go to the baths. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the horrible mineral bath. Slightly decaying, yeah. smelly mineral bath. So from here, we are going to continue to make our way down towards... Uh, Guildford via Dorking and Leatherhead yes we're going to ride round drive round Box Hill yes along the River Mole oh we're, we're in the Mole District we're now. in the Mole District we're heading for the Hogs Back to Farnham uh, uh, we're going to stop at a place called Puttenham Puttenham right on the top of the Hogs Back which is mentioned in the book excellent um, I'm hoping we'll find a car park up there because now it's an A road dream over known fields with an old friend in dream i walked but came sudden to a strange stream its dark waters were bursting out most bright from a great mountain's heart into the light they ran a short course under the sun then back into a pit they plunged once more as black as at their birth and i stood thinking there how white had the day shone on them they were heaving and coiling so by the roar and hiss 
and by the mighty motion of the abyss, I was bemused that I forgot my friend, and neither saw nor sought him till the end, when I awoke from waters unto men, saying, I shall be here some day again. Very nice. So his friend's Robert Frost, right? He's writing about uh, walking with his friend Robert Frost, the American poet, who came over to England in 1913 when Thomas was sort of thinking about going on this journey and writing this book. Yeah. They became very, very close. Really? And Frost became uh, a key part of the reason Thomas started writing poetry. So who was who was this chap, Edward Thomas? Philip Edward Thomas, to Philip. give him his full Phil. name. Phil, as I would Phil. call him. Hey, yeah, Phil. Yeah. Born 1878. He was born in on 10 Upper Lansdowne Road North, Lambeth. There you go. Which is uh, sort of a little bit of an echo of um, our Up the Junction podcast, because that was not the same Lansdowne Road, but it was Lansdowne Road close. again, wasn't it? Pretty yeah. close. Yeah, you know what? He's a South Clapham guy rather than a North Clapham yeah. guy, isn't he? Yeah, Let's yeah, be clear. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, he was the eldest of six sons of Philip Henry Thomas. Six who, sons? So he had five brothers. I know. Blimey. So his father was staff clerk for light railways and tramways at the Board of Trade. So very much my sort of person. Oh, no. A Welshman running railways. Oh, no. Uh, and his mother, Mary Elizabeth Townsend, was daughter of William Henry Townsend, a master mariner of Newport. And, uh, he was educated at various schools, went to Battersea Grammar School. Did he now? Yeah. So I think Roger Moore went to Battersea Grammar School. Did he? I believe he did. Roger Moore. My Move! Roger Moore. <laughs> Roger Moore is old enough to maybe have been at school with... Uh, with uh, Edward Thomas. Just nearly. He met uh, and started a relationship with uh, a woman called Helen Berenice Noble, and uh, she described him. She's got a very striking description of him, actually, which I think is rather good. His nose was long and straight, his mouth very sensitive, the chin was strong, the eyes were grey and dreamy and meditative, his hands were large and powerful, and he could do anything with them. Anything? <laughs> Anything, Helen? What would Roger say? They married in 1899. He matriculated at uh, Oxford in 1897. But they were going out while he was at university. While he was at university, yeah. yeah. So they, they met very young. Yeah. And that's actually a feature of, his, of, of what sort of goes wrong with him. They, they marry young. They have children very young. He starts to believe that his family life and her and his children are stopping him uh, doing what he wants to do and yeah. being what he wants to be. So he ends up being a bit of a hack critic. So, bit you know, of a hack? Well, you know, he, I mean, he's well, writing 4,000 words a day at one well, point. Well, in the books, but I mean, early on, you know, he's a regular reviewer for the Daily Chronicle, £2 a week, reviewed contemporary poetry, reprints, criticism and country books. First daughter born in 1902. So he's very young yeah. and they moved houses time and time again. Now, they ended up most significantly in Steep, We've been there. We've been there because John Wyndham lived there. That's right. Um, and so, you know, they were tr- great restlessness in his life at this time. And also, I think even more importantly, he was obviously quite profoundly depressed. Yeah. I think. Um, and I'm going to read from Very Fine, uh, Now All Roads Lead to France, The Last Years of Edward Thomas by Matthew Hollis, which is an absolutely brilliant uh, literary biography. I would say. Yeah, it's we great. We both enjoyed it, it didn't, we? Mm. didn't we? So he's got Thomas saying this in the in sort of 1900s. I sat thinking about ways of killing myself. My revolver has only one bullet left. I couldn't hang myself, and though I imagined myself cutting my throat with a razor on Wheatham, I had not the energy to go. Then I went out and thought what effects my suicide would have. 
I don't think I mind them. My acquaintances, I no longer have friends, would talk a day or two when they met and try to explain and, of course, see suggestions in the past. W. H. Davis would suffer a little. Helen and the children, less in reality than they do now from my accursed tempers and moodiness. It is dislike of the effort to kill myself and fear that I could not carry it through if I half did it that keeps me alive. Only that, for I hate my work, my reviewing, my best I feel is negligible. I have no vitality, no originality, no love. I do harm. Love is dead and lust almost dead. Almost? It's quite a bit of writing there, isn't it? It and also is. that's yeah, it's a bit of an odd last sentence, isn't it? <laughs> he did actually try to kill himself in the winter of nineteen oh eight. Right. He went out with a gun and it was all very d- distressing. God. So that's sort of that's sort of where he is when he meets Frost, right? It's sort of nineteen when he's setting out on this journey in nineteen thirteen. Yeah. And Frost is really important to him because first of all they become busy mates and they discuss poetry and they have lots of theories of poetry. Yeah. And they both share this view that poetry should be more like speech. Yes, become it should be like rhythmic speech. They talk about cadence a lot. Thomas actually writes a letter to Frost and says, "I'm thinking about writing some poetry." Mm. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, obviously. What do you think? Am I mad? And Frost basically replies back saying, "You're already writing poetry." And I just want to read what Frost said about it later. Edward Thomas had about lost patience with the minor poetry. It was his business to review. It took me to tell him what his trouble was. He was suffering from a life of subordination to his inferiors. Right at that moment, he was writing as good a poetry as anybody alive, but in prose form, where it didn't declare itself and gain him recognition. I referred to the paragraphs here and there in such a book as In Pursuit of Spring and pointed them out. Let him write them in verse form in exactly the same cadence and we would see. That's all there was to it. His poetry declared itself in verse form and in the year before he died he took his place where he belonged among the English poets. So he basically tells him that. There's an extraordinary passage in the Matthew Hollis biography where Thomas actually writes down his first poem. Oh, that's so exciting. And I can't read it all, but I I highly recommend you going to it. But he basically takes some notes in his diary, dated 2nd of November 1914, and the notes were, I could wring the old girl's neck that put it here, a public house, brackets charcoal burner, by bringing up and quite undoing the idea of London, two woods around and never a road in sight, etc. It goes on and on and on. And he basically turns that into a poem. And I've never read anything quite like this in this Hollis book, actually, about somebody writing their first poem yeah, and it coming out really quite well and being quite good. So yeah, I think he really read one every day for, lovely piece, yeah. for, a, for a few So then days. he starts writing these poems and yeah. he's terrifically happy with, with the outcome and, you know, yeah. blissfully, you know, enjoying that. But then, of course, what's happening while he's doing that? Oh, the bloody war breaks out, right? And uh, you know, and, and, the damn war, and the damn war. Those damn Germans, damn, damn, damn it them, killed the poetry. Yeah, Thomas is umming and ahhing about joining up. So then, um, Frost and meanwhile, meanwhile, goes back to America and actually goes back with Thomas's son because Thomas and Frost have got this idea. We we'll talk about this in the, on the road about mm. setting up a community of like-minded folk in New England. Sounds ghastly. It sounds awful. But then Frost writes this poem while he's in America called "The Road Less Taken," which. Probably a lot of you out there, if you know you anything well about know Robert Frost, you'd know that yeah. poem. And the point of that is that Thomas took that as being... Because it is about him being a, a bit like the poem we read at the start of this about him walking together. It's kind of Frost's version of that poem. Yeah. 
I went out walking with Edward Thomas. Yeah. And he could never decide which way to go. So there yeah. were two parts. He could become undeniable about it. It's quite an artful poem. And Thomas took it quite badly really as a did. sort of, are you saying I can't make my mind up? Uh, <laughs> he's quite cross, isn't he? He's quite cross. And also says something like, oh, your poem's not very good anyway. He t- took this as a kind of criticism of him being indecisive. Shilly shallying. And so yeah. what does he do? Signs he up. joins up. Yeah. And he goes and trains in Essex. Uh, doesn't ship out, actually, to, to the field until early 1917. No. And then is killed almost instantly in the oh. shelling, the first day shelling at Arras. Yes. That never lives to see his poetry come out in print because the collect the, 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 the uh, well, he comes under out under his a pseudonym. own name. He had a pseudonym, pseudonym and he published some under a pseudonym, yeah. which I think but did then come his out. Coll- his select his poet first poetry anthology yeah. was published after, after he died. After he died, yeah. Uh, that's and obviously right. he his his reputation just grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. Well, I think uh, the Ted poems Hughes are rather good. Doesn't Ted Hughes call him the father of us all or something? Yes. Um, so he's influence. He seemed to be an influence on. Well, I think he's an influence on one particular type of poet. We'll come on to poetry oh, wars later okay. on. Yeah, but that's well, that's broadly speaking. Well, you've done a fine job Thomas's there. Arc. I hardly had to say anything. It's yeah. wonderful. I could just sit back, have my cup of tea, <laughs> listen to you talk about Edward Thomas. I enjoyed that very much. Well, we're about, we're going to head off back out on the road. Yeah, uh, we're going to be high over the hills above Guildford oh, on yeah. the Hog's Back. Oh where yeah, we found a cafe, a caravan. And a Durex rapper. Very poetic. <laughs> You're a poet. <laughs> Two roads diverged in a yellow wood And sorry I could not travel both and be one traveller Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could To where it bent in the undergrowth Then took the other as just as fair And having perhaps the better claim Because it was grassy and wanted wear Though as for that, the passing there Had worn them really about the same And both that morning equally lay In leaves no step had trodden black Oh, I kept the first for another day Yet knowing how way leads on to way I doubted if I should ever come back I shall be telling this with a sigh Somewhere ages and ages hence Two roads diverged in a wood And I I took the one less travelled by And that has made all the difference A mile out of Guildford, the road is well upon the back, and for five or six miles it runs straight, yet not too straight, with slight change of altitude, yet never flat, and for the most part, upon the very ridge, the topmost bristles of the hog's back. The ridge, in fact, has in some parts only just breadth enough to carry the road, and the land sinks away rapidly on both hands, giving the traveller the sensation of going on the crest of a stout wall, surveying his immense possessions northward and southward. The wastes, of course, are divided from the cultivated slopes below by hedges, but either these are low as on the right, or they are regularly expanded into thickets of yew and blackthorn, and even into beech plantations on to the left, 
Whoever cares to rides or walks here instead of on the dust. A goat or two were feeding here. There was, and there nearly always is, an encampment of gypsies. Well, there's a caravan. There's a caravan. He does talk about a caravan. There were two caravans at the highest point near Putnam, where the ridge is so narrow that the roadside thicket is well below the road, and I saw clear to Hindhead. In another place, there were two antique patch tents on hoops. We are standing at the on the Hogsback above Putnam. In a thicket. L- in a thicket, looking at a caravan. Yeah, we're spot on. <laughs> spot on. Spot on. It's quite windy, so apologies if this is very windy on the uh, in your ears at the moment. We've just stopped at the Hogsback Cafe. Yeah, we've had a very nice... I'm looking at uh, a tree with the name Zoe carved into it. Yep. And just below that tree, there's a discarded Durex wrapper. How romantic. So... Similar vibe to how it was in Edward Thomas's day, I would say. Stopped off here, do you think? Do you think it stopped off for a quick bit of <laughs> a quick bit of some rumpty tumpty in With the a gypsy woman. in the Blackthorn Plantation? <laughs> With a gypsy woman. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Come on. Yeah. He's not that kind of guy. He's really not that kind of guy at all. No. Not in any. But this shape is entirely accurate. Apart from now, the trees have grown much taller. So they but, it, but this, the view, this plantation is below the road. It is. The other thing that we noticed when we were on the road is that actually it's quite a lot wider on the top than. He described. There's actually a picture of it in the book, the taller, uh, the, the little taller, the little taller version, which yeah. has got some uh, some of his original photographs in it. But it does look very narrow. It's much wider now. Now it's a dual carriageway road with a lot of traffic on it. We've come down the hill a bit, so the traffic noise isn't so loud. But the view on either side is incredible. It is. It's stunning in one way and, yeah. and north to the other. It is. It is amazing. Um, I've got a poem for you. Oh, lovely. And um, I thought we could talk about wind and mist, which he talks about a lot, doesn't he? Well, we've got wind up here. But the wind is big here, right? So this starts. They met inside the gateway that gives the view, a hollow land as vast as heaven. It is a pleasant day, sir, a very pleasant day. And what a view here, if you like angled fields of grass and grain bounded by oak and thorn. Here is a league. Had we with Germany to play upon this board, it could not be more dear than April has made it with a smile. So, very uh, nice. It, obviously, it's written a little bit later because of mentions of Germany yeah. and the intimations of the war. But in that poem, he has a fantastic thing about uh, he lived in a house up there and he says, um, he calls it a cloud castle, and he says, I had forgot the wind. Pray do not let me get on to the wind. You would not understand about the wind. It is my subject, and compared with me, those who have always lived on the firm ground are quite unreal in this matter of the wind. There were whole days and nights when the wind and I, between us, shared the world, and the wind ruled, and I obeyed it and forgot the mist. Very good. That was lovely. What's that poem called? Wind and Mist. Wind and Mist. Say what you see. And who wrote it? Uh, Thomas Edward. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to come up here, it's the A31 out of Guildford. Well, as soon as there's a path that presumably is leading down towards the village of Putnam. Down towards Putnam, yeah. Um, So you can get off the hogs back and uh, off the main road, which is full of traffic, and yeah, and then just walk off there, and you're pretty much in the right space. He was here. He no was, doubt about it. He was here. He never reviews his um, food, I, I noted. No. I, I would have obviously 
talked about my sausage, beans and chips. Well, you would have Instagrammed it, right? I'm almost certainly, yeah. If he was doing it now, it would have been a whole series of Instagram but shots. He's, he's, my, he's, he's got his little notebook out, and it's yeah. always about the ivy and the flowers and the wind and the rain. Never about his food. No. You're listening to the Curiously Specific Book Club, the podcast that is curiously specific about dates and locations in well-known books. If you want to listen to the second episode of our adventure with Edward Thomas's In Pursuit of Spring right now, without any ads, you need to join us on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com and search for Curiously Specific, hand over a couple of quid, and you'll get every episode that we do as soon as it's available, without any ads, and a whole bunch of extras. Yes, you'll get um, photos... There's lots of photos for this road trip. Um, and a map. This this is a good one. Yeah. <laughs> it fell, it's fallen to you it's to do a, to this me. map, which is yeah. probably one of the most complicated maps you could think well, of. Well, you know, I'm I'm on a I'm on a roll with my maps now oh, after, come on. after Rue, one of our, our premium subscribers. One person said a nice thing well, and now suddenly nice you're your good maps? at maps. <laughs> God. Tim is the artist. And mine are more prosaic. Yeah, so no. I do a prosaic map about poetry. Yeah, I've had no compliments for my maps. <laughs> so for five pounds, you can join us on our Discord server, where everyone is telling me how good my maps are. No, one uh, person is <laughs> one person, and we have really great conversations about books we might do. Think conversations that spin out of books that we've done, and general booky chit chat. Um, otherwise, we'll see you in a week for the second part of this episode. But meanwhile, we should go back to the podcast. Back to the podcast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. (laughs) 
A low wall on a bank separated it from the road, and where a footpath had to pass the wall, the stile was a slab of stone pierced by two pairs of footholes, approached up the bank by three stone steps. It was here at eleven that I first heard the chiff-chaff saying, Chiff-chaff, 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 chiff. See, this is our take three of this recording. <laughs> Because we've both been <laughs> on the useless. first one, I didn't have my recorder turned on. On the second one, you never your yeah, turn. Yeah, and your chiff chaff impression is getting worse. You know, in the recording studio, sometimes they go, you do loads of takes of something, and then you, you go, do. why don't we listen to the one we did at the first take? And yeah. everyone goes, oh yeah, that's quite good actually. Well, you can't because it wasn't being recorded. It's lost in the wind. It has to remain mythical. Your mythical bird impression. Did you hear the chiff chaff, listener? So the first time we recorded, there was no chiff-chaff. The second time there was, but quite faint. The third time... It's come nearer. It's like it's getting closer, going... Well, because it's trying to find a mate, and it's discovered one. Because of your, <laughs> ama- chiff, chiff, chiff. your amazing <laughs> chiff-chaff impression. I'm going to get hit in the back of the head by a chiff-chaff any minute. I'm looking forward to more bird impressions from you. <laughs> and I'm hoping they get better. <laughs> well, so we are sitting, to quote Edward Thomas, uh, next to a red church tower among elms and black-flamed cypresses. Perfect. It's exactly uh, in, uh, right. Upper Froyle. Yeah. It's exactly right. Uh, We're in the right place. Um, but this is... Uh, he comes here after Farnham. Mm. We came through Farnham on the way down from Hog's Back. Nightmare. Absolute nightmare. One-way system from hell, combined with a southeast water road closure. Uh, but uh, he definitely hears a chiff-chaff here, and we did too. I mean, that's... That's quite good, uh, isn't you know, it? Uh, that was fate that we both screwed up on the recording there, because that was meant to be. That, that we had the... We that had was the ghost of Edward Thomas going, just hang on a minute, lads. There'll be a chiff-chaff along in a minute. Yeah, as long as it pulls a chiff-chaff. I feel there's going to be a listener out there who's going to say to us, look, you idiot, that's not a chiff-chaff. Well, I'll I'll play it to my friend Dan, and uh, he's very good on birds, and he will tell me whether or not that was a chiff-chaff. If he says it's not, I'm just going to ignore him. I'm not. I'll put a nine to him. Edward Thomas notoriously, I think when people gave him notes about his poems, tended to say, thanks very much, but I'm not changing it. Yeah, yeah, really did, yeah. I'm not changing it. No. He sent the first package off to Harold Monroe, didn't he? The poetry, whatever. And he said, oh, I don't I like this, I don't like that. And he's like, well, I'm that's, not changing it. That's what it is. Yeah. Fair play to him. All oh, right, fair enough, yeah. yeah. Uh, do you want a poem? Well, I, uh, this would be the third time I've heard it. I might get better. Well, unlike my chiff-chaff. <laughs> okay. I get well, better, uh, you get you've, worse. You've warmed up. Okay, you're going to read us a lovely poem now. Yeah, it's going to uh, be By a po- Thomas, comma, Edward, yeah. poet, yeah, it's called I Never Saw That Land Before. Okay. I think it's got something about this landscape in it. Take it away, maestro. I never saw that land before, and now can never see it again. Yet, as if by acquaintance, whore, endeared by gladness and by pain, great was the affection that I bore to the valley and the river small, the cattle, the grass, the bare ash trees, the chickens from the farmsteads, all helm-hidden, and the tributaries descending at equal interval. The blackthorns down along the brook, with wounds yellow as crocuses, where yesterday the labourer's hook had sliced them cleanly, and the breeze that hinted all, and nothing spoke. I neither expected anything, nor yet remembered, but some goal I touched then, and if I could sing, what would not even whisper my soul as I went on my journeying? I should use, as the trees and the birds did, a language not to be betrayed, and what was hid should still be hid, excepting from those like me made, who answer when such whispers bid. Very good. 
So he's communing with nature. It's the best yet, just as we are now. There we are. The birds have a language not to be betrayed. Yeah, very good. It's time for Poet talk. Wars. Poetry Wars. <laughs> I did write Poetry Wars down in my in, in my notes. Poet Wars. Uh, what's going on with poetry in 1913, Tim? Uh, I'm re- reading again from Matthew Hollis, All Roads Lead to France. In 1913, a new direction in poetry was desperately needed. The heyday of Victorian poetry was long over. Matthew Arnold had died in 1888, Robert Browning a year later, and the laureate Alfred Lord Tennyson... That's rather grand, isn't it? The laureate, Alfred Lord Tennyson, mm-hmm. grand, had followed three years after that the brother and sister Rossetti's either side of this eminent trio. Swinburne and Meredith lived on, but their best work was behind them, while the curtain had fallen on the risque fin de siècle and their leading lights, Aubrey Beardsley, Beardsley, sorry, Aubrey, Aubrey Beardsley, Beardsley. <laughs> Aubrey Beardsley, Oscar Wilde and Ernest Dowson had all died as the century turned. The Edwardian decade that followed had left behind a strand line of conservative imperialist versed. Hollis starts his book actually at the opening of the Poetry Bookshop in Bloomsbury. Oh yeah. And uh, is that in January January 1913? 1913. Which yeah. actually Thomas and Frost were both there at that but they didn't actually meet there. Okay. Interesting. So Frost goes there to try and meet some English poets. It's quite a big deal the Poetry Bookshop, isn't it? it because was. it also publishes lots of poetry as well as Well, they meetings, published right? uh, the Georgian the Georgians or the Georgian poets, which oh. is so basically the, this guy Harold Munro, who founded the the uh, poetry bookshop, came up with this concept of the Georgian poets, who were people like Rupert Brooke. He was the star of the show, wasn't he? Really? Yeah. The Georgians looked to the local, the commonplace, and the day to day, mistrusting grandiosity, philosophical inquiry, or spiritual cant. Many held an attachment to the traditions of English romantic verse. They looked to Wordsworth in their connection to the land rather than John Donne and the metaphysical pursuit of the soul. Mm-hmm. Right. So that was what the Georgian poets were all about. Well, that's uh, nature writings. Yeah, so nature writing's part of that, isn't it? Or, big, big part, of, big that. part, big of, part that. of that. So that so that's another reason why this book in pursuit of springs so, so relevant. So relevant, and, and uh, Thomas was very much sort of connected with that tradition. Partly because he became attached to a group called the Dimmock Poets. Now, where is Dimmock? I don't even Dim- know where that is. Dimmock's in Gloucestershire. Is it? Right. So Dimmock Poets, six writers, Lascelles Abercrombie. Nice name. Rupert Brooke, John Drinkwater, Wilfred Gibson, Edward Thomas and Robert Frost. Associated with the village of Dimmock between Ross-on-Wye and Ledbury on the Gloucestershire-Herefordshire border. Uh, Abercrombie, Lascelles Abercrombie, moved into a cottage, the Gallows, close to Demick in 1911, and that became a key meeting place. Thomas and Frost basically used to go and spend an awful lot of time there. That's where they did most of their walks. Yeah, well, Frost lived there. Frost lived there for a long time. Yeah, and yep. then Thomas would visit long term. I think he'd bring his family as well and yeah, rent a go, house. They basically go on extended holidays there, and Thomas and Frost would go on these long walks. Nice. So again, leaving the, leaving the kids and the wives to yeah. deal with the cooking and yeah. clothing leaving and everything his wife else. Helen nice. behind. Yeah, poets, uh, poets. they all wrote poetry about Dimmock, apart from Brooke. Well, the, so the Dimmock poets were very much. Um, uh, set up as kind of the Georgians. That was that was the kind of the height of the Georgian poetry thing. Yeah, and so um, they all got they all got published in the compendium. It's a bit of a stitch up, isn't it? Basically, it's all a bit because it's just up. basically their mate Munro 
then decides to give them a label or, yeah. and say, I'll publish a book of That's all your right. stuff and you'll make a bit That's of enough right. money that you won't have to actually do any hard yeah. labor down in Dimmock. You can just sit around talking about poetry. But then the enemy arrives. The enemy, the other side, the gang. The enemy at them. the gates. The, so the George is on one side, very English, yeah. very countryside based. Actually, quite sort of you know into the war in lots of ways because it was defending England. Yeah. But then on the other side, you've got the imagists. The imagists. Yes. Yeah. So March nineteen thirteen, in the issue of Poetry Magazine, two articles by Mister Ezra Pound. Ezra Pound. And one of them is called, which I really like. This is a few don'ts by an imagist. <laughs> and he wrote another article called Imagism. Imagism. I think it is. And uh, he has a list of things. Obviously, he likes lists as well, doesn't he? He does. Things, the things you mustn't do or must yep. do. The, here's his basic list, which is direct treatment of the thing, whether subjective or objective, to use absolutely no word that does not contribute to the presentation. As regarding rhythm, to compose in sequence of the musical phrase, not in sequence of the metronome. Big, big deal. <laughs> I, I can't argue with any of those. What's your point, Ezra? I, I like this. I found that the French academic René Toupin said, um, it is more accurate to consider imagism not as a doctrine, nor even a poetic school, but as the association of a few poets who were for a certain time in agreement on a small number of important principles. Yeah, but I think you could probably say the same about the Georgians, right? Small number of poems, poets yeah. in agreement. I mean, the main thing they had in common was, you know, writing about nature and being published by Harold Monroe. <laughs> but I, I feel like that, you know, that that's you and me down the pub talking about football, isn't it? <laughs> we could call it footballisme. Footballisme. It's an association of a few punters who, for a certain time, in agreement on a small number of important footballing principles. Yeah. So that's the poetry situation in 1930 when Thomas comes along. Yeah. So who won that battle? Do you think? I think. Uh, I think the interesting thing about all that. I think there's two things I want to say about that. One mm. is it's quite clear that Thomas and Frost transcend those, those, those kind of. Labels. rather spurious labels yeah. and become their own thing yeah. quite Thomas in particular very quickly yeah. and he started writing poetry in 1914 yeah. and he's dead by 1917 um, the other thing I want to say about it is that the shadow kind of falling all over this when you look back at it from here yeah. is, is, is T.S. Eliot who's kind of like he's already met up with Pound in London yeah. know, Pound's already helping him out with the wasteland yeah. um, but and also, also most of the Georgians did, did go to war a lot of the images did not. No. Well, make of that what you will. Right? Yeah. And therefore, half the Georgians aren't there. And we all know nine... where Ezra Pound's politics ended up. So. <laughs> 1919. And, and... Well, and then Robert Frost, of course, ended up uh, delivering a poem at uh, J.F. Kennedy's inauguration. Yeah. The Gift Outright, yeah. very famous poem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he went all the way up to the top of the establishment tree. Yeah. As um, did Eliot. As did Eliot. So that you you could say, do you know what? The Georgians were actually quite popular oh, initially. Really, I mean, the, 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 the volume of poetry sold out like five yeah. times. And I don't think it was really until the 1930s that people started to use it as a derogatory term for, no. for sort of yeah. passé, old-fashioned, nostalgic yeah. poets. On Saturday evening, a marsh tit and a robin alone seemed to have anything to do with them. Nevertheless, I went contentedly on between mossy banks hedges of beech, rhododendrons and woodlands of oak, beech and larch, which opened out in one place to show me the fern and pine of Ganga Common. Now, this is the bit that is of interest. This is the bit that Robert Frost, when he 
read it, said... He said, write it out as verse. Yes, said, if you break see this you're up... you're a poet. Yeah, you're a poet. That's exactly it. It's this. The earth was quiet, dark and beautiful. The owl was beginning to hunt over the fields while the blackbird finished his song. Pleasant with a yellow road, the roadside bramble and briar hoops, the gravel pits and gorse at corners. But the sky was wild, threatening the earth both with dark clouds impending and with momentary wan gleams between them, angrier than the clouds. Is that poetry? It is poetry. And it's it brought us to this place. It doesn't describe what I'm looking at. <laughs> no. So we're standing uh, on the... Uh, is it Gangan Sports Park or something? Ganga Sports. Ganga Sports Park. Yeah. We think this is where the common was. Yeah. It's now been converted into uh, well, an odd landscape, really. On the far side, there's some new housing. Then there's a, a sports centre with... Um, uh, artificial football pitches and a couple of uh, rugby pitches and then new plant trees everywhere and then some kind of, I suppose, slightly wandering pathways going through it. it it's an attempt to make a, a a kind of public utility out of big open space, so to be applauded, I would say. Um, but it's not by any means poetic. Well, I don't know. I think if we just cut up what you said and put it into lines... <laughs> Perhaps that would be a poem. <laughs> and then Edward Thomas says it. So here we are at Ganga Khan. We found the place where, the, where he became the, a poet. The inner poet was unleashed by his description of this place. Yeah. And it's, and, a, it's a rugby pitch. Yeah, <laughs> it's a rugby pitch. <laughs> but as he says in the book, he says, Many poets are known to have resided for a long or a short time in certain places. But of these, a great many did not obviously owe much to their surroundings, and some of those that did, like Wordsworth, possessed a creative power which made it unnecessary that the reader should see the places, whatever the railway companies may say. Right, so you're saying we needn't have bothered? <laughs> it's not me. It's him. Well, I have to say, Edward, in this particular case, you're probably right. I don't think we're going to find the inner poet looking at that. Uh, all-weather football pitch. No. Yes, I remember Adelstrop. The name because one afternoon of heat the express train drew up there unwantedly. It was late June. The steam hissed. Someone cleared his throat. No <coughs> one left and no one came on the bare platform. What I saw was Adelstrop, only the name, and willows, willow herb and grass, and meadow sweet and haycocks dry, no whit less still and lonely fair than the high cloudlets in the sky. And for that minute a blackbird sang, close by, and round him, mistier, father and father, all the birds of Oxfordshire and Gloucestershire. Nice. Nice. We're on a railway station. We are at a railway station. With lots of bird sounds. With bird sounds. But it isn't Adelstrop. It's not in Gloucestershire. But it is a railway station with an Edward Thomas connection. It really is, isn't it? Are you going to explain to us why it has an Edward Thomas? Well, I should tell you, to, listen, it's Mottisfont and Dunbridge. 
Not yeah. a bad title for a poem. That's right. What is? Yeah, you went for Adelstrop instead. You went for Adelstrop instead. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, I remember Mottisford and Dunbridge. Yes. No, it doesn't scan. No. Well, it I think have that, that I, cadence. I think I think Adelstrop may have had better memories for him than this. He's in the pouring rain, and he's uh, he's looking for somewhere to stay the night. Yeah. So he's pushed on against the wind and rain to the bare and ragged staff. We saw that yep. a bigger inn that same claimed to have accommodation for cyclists. But no, it does not. It was raining, hailing and blowing furiously, but they could not give me a bed. They directed me to the Mill Arms at Dunbridge, and looking across from the station, there indeed is... The Mill Arms. The Mill Arms. Country pub and dining, as we have to say these days. Crossing the test by Kimbridge Mill, that the half-drowned fields smelt like the sea. We went across there, didn't we? Yeah. And I turned sharply northwestward, the wind helped me, and I was now at a third inn. And they informed me that I could by no means have a bed. Now, so luckily, a train was just starting which would bear me away from Dunbridge to Salisbury. I boarded it, and by eight o'clock, I was among the people who were buying and selling fish and oranges to the accompaniment of a much chaffing and but no bad temper in Fish Row. Brilliant. So this is where he caught the train. He caught the train from here to Salisbury. If I look at the uh, departure board, um, it's now 4.37 in the afternoon. The next Salisbury train is at 4.56, and it takes 21 minutes, Tim. He's tired. You see, we've got a train station in. You're pleased <laughs> now, you aren't you? Oh, well, I, was, I wasn't actually going to stop here, but then when we came here, it's too good, it's too it's good too to good, miss. It's too good, isn't it? It's too good. So... Uh, and we got we got Adelstrop in. We shoehorned Adelstrop we shoe, in there. We shoehorned Adelstrop in. Why not? To do. So yeah, listener, if you're doing the Edward Thomas Trail, this is quite a good one to yeah. stand on an abandoned, an old train station. There's nobody here. There's a lot of traffic around, but actually there are a lot of birds. A lot of birds still, aren't there? So you and, just um, have a quiet moment to yourself. We've in been here. on the drive through from here, um, uh, from Froyle and all those places to here. Uh, you were questioning his pub accuracy, right? Oh, yeah, I was. And we've been counting the pubs as we've gone along, he's, reading the books as we go. He's doing quite well. He's done very well. His only little trip up was that he thought one was called the White Horse when it was called yes. the White Hart. Yeah, I think we can give him But other one. than that, he's been very I good. Think we can give him that one. Pub knowledge. Very good. Chapeau. <laughs> Chapeau, Mr. Thomas. Of heat, the express train drew up there unwantedly was late June The steam hissed Someone cleared his throat But no one left But no one came So we must take a break now, Tim because we're halfway to the Quantox Yes uh, We've been to Adelstrop Station and we haven't been to Adelstrop Station we've been to Dundridge Station yes. we've tried to pretend it was Adelstrop Station and we've seen the common where um Edward Thomas arguably became a poet. Yes, it's not what it was, mm. I'd say. Bit of a disappointment. Well, he would not have liked it. He'd gone a bit imagist. <laughs> was uh, Ezra Pound into football? <laughs> he, I don't know if he was into football, but I think he was probably into structures. <laughs> I bet he was into Italian football. Oh, I bet he was. Uh, so we're going to leave uh, uh, Edward Thomas for now. Uh, well, he's trundling on a train into Salisbury. He's jumped point, on a train he? to Salisbury. Because he can't be bothered to cycle anymore. We're going to jump on a train to part two. 
Yeah. Uh, if you want to get the express train to part two, I'm going to ridiculous. Now keep going. To get the express train to part two. Yeah. Join our Patreon club because it's available for you now on the server without any ads. Yeah, just two pounds. You have to get the commuter uh, stopping train, which will be with you in a week when you get part two on your podcast platform yeah, of choice. Yeah, and there'll be all those terrible, crappy ads on disrupting your disrupt- experience of the poetry and our mellifluous voices, poetic speech. Uh, join us in a week, or join us right now. We'll see you back on the road shortly. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.